0: folks welcome to the physical education podcast i'm pa morand from the back pain coach and today i'm going to be talking about nutrition from the point of view of stress and pain reduction Um, what i'm going to outline is where most nutritional advice goes wrong and how nutrition for pain and stress reduction is probably the complete opposite of what you would expect and how most of what you might believe about nutrition is actually wrong which uh, i understand is quite a bold claim Um, But I want to be upfront uh, before we start that I'm not a nutritionist, I'm a physical therapist by training with a psychology degree. And so what I'm going to be sharing with you is based on my personal experience of overcoming uh, 15 years of chronic pain and my own independent research on the topic of nutrition. And so to present a bit of balance uh, and objectivity to this I want to point out that this is merely my own perspective and I'm perfectly comfortable with being wrong uh, as I've been wrong before but I've always been happy to accept I'm wrong and keep searching for the truth because ultimately that's all that matters and we're going to discuss this in detail the sort of dogmatic aspects of nutrition and how we can become entrenched in different viewpoints and um, and nutrition—it's an extremely, extremely polarizing topic, and everyone seems to have a strong stance on this topic. And um, so, I try not to be entrenched in one position or to have an allegiance to one viewpoint. I'm open to all perspectives. And if you're dismissing this position based on my credentials or lack of credentials, we could say, uh, which is a common complaint that people will have. And I would say it's somewhat of a fair complaint. To that, I would say. No one has a monopoly on the truth and on accurate information, which is one of the great things about our access to information in modern times. Um, you know, we can. You know, everyone has access to information if they have access to a library, to the internet, or if they can buy a book. Um, so I would say, based on that, don't dismiss what I'm going to share with you. Don't dismiss it immediately on account of my credentials but also don't take my word as gospel. Um, You may want to view what I'm presenting as food for thought that allows you to make up your own mind and make the right decisions for your needs. So really one of my ultimate goals with this and all of the content I produce is for it to be thought provoking and to challenge you because what I've found after years of dealing with my own pain is that the truth is nuanced and it's uh, what needs to happen for you to overcome pain is quite individual and we waste a lot of time and money and resources going just blindly following certain approaches and not really knowing why we do what we do. And that's really what I want to equip you with, is the ability to know why you're doing what you're you're doing. And I'll share a bit about that towards the end as I talk about my own experience with trying different nutritional approaches and basically making my health worse. So as I've discussed extensively in the past, pain is created based on the brain perceiving some sort of threat. So any kind of elevation of stress is going to lead to the brain and the body feeling more threatened. So in the simplest terms, if we want to reduce pain, we need to make the brain and the body feel as safe as possible. It's a simple enough concept. And one of the major ways we can make the brain and body feel safe is through adequate nutrition. Uh, so this is what we're going to be discussing today and we'll be asking what is nutrition that is nourishing and that creates safety in the body and what is nutrition that reduces the levels of stress hormones in the body. And these are perspectives that are rarely covered in popular nutrition advice and as you'll soon find out they tend to fly in the face of most of what we've been told about nutrition. So. Stay tuned for that. So the simplest way we can make the brain and body feel safe is by providing enough calories for the demands of our lives. Uh, Because everything has a cost. To simply lie in bed and do nothing requires a certain amount of calories. Uh, And obviously, if we do more, then we require more calories. Uh, And if we don't provide sufficient calories, then two, two things will tend to happen. And the first is that there will be some sort of compromise in function in part of in some some part of the body so for example our digestive function might be reduced in order to sort of ration the energy stores we have so the example I use is that you have an income of a thousand euro for example but it costs 1200 euro to run all parts of the body at full function so to run all of your organ systems at 100% capacity or just as well as possible, it would cost €1200, hypothetically. Uh, But all you are getting in or all you are able to use is a €1000 worth of energy. So there's a deficit there and unless you provide sufficient calories, or in this case income, so to speak, uh, there will be a trade-off and some part or parts of your body will be functioning at a reduced capacity. Now. The uh, second way we can create safety in the body uh, is um, you know, the second thing that will tend to happen is that the body will have to find another way of procuring energy. So for not providing enough calories to the body, um, the body has to find a way. It has to procure energy some way, and it usually does this by converting muscle tissue or fat stores into energy. And this is actually a very useful feature of the human body. And it's often touted as being optimal by people who are proponents of things like the ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate approaches or any forms of fasting such as intermittent fasting or multiple day fasts. The, the issue with the, the body running out of energy stores and having to convert muscle or fat stores into energy is that it's actually quite a stressful process and requires the elevation of stress hormones and it can add to the overall burden on the body so we we also need to understand that our brain and its sense of survival are unconsciously controlled while we consciously know you know that we're only engaging in a fast for a few hours so if you do intermittent fasting you know that your next meal is in 16 hours consciously you know that but unconsciously your survival instincts don't necessarily realize that because they, they don't work in the same fashion Uh, And so what we end up doing is we stress these unconscious survival instincts. And if we've been stressed and in pain for a long time, which is likely the case if you're watching this video, if you're interested in pain relief. So if we've been in pain for a long time, and as a result, we've been stressed for a long time, our brain is going to be on high alert for any additional threats to our survival. So. A lack of food is a threat to your survival it's the potential threat of famine as far as your unconscious survival based mind is concerned so in really severe cases the experience of a mild fasting period could be perceived as the threat of famine and you are going to have an elevation of stress hormones and all sorts of downstream negative effects because of that uh, and those are on the more extreme sides of things, but it, this happens to varying degrees. And it's, it's just to kind of challenge challenge you on that because there, there is a popularity in, in deprivation of, of eating and a popularity with things like fasting and low carbohydrate diet. So with this in mind, hopefully you can see how the restriction of food, as well as the frequency of consumption are relevant factors in our overall stress level so uh, what's popular again in intermittent fasting would be that you still eat a, a large amount of calories but only during a very small window of time um, but that's still a large portion of the day when you're not getting calories and your your unconscious mind m- may, might be feeling very threatened by that and will be increasing stress hormones and regardless of that it, it's going to need to increase, increase stress hormones to keep uh, producing energy so I think it's worth mentioning this because we tend not to suspect these things as relevant because they're not really talked about much in the world of health and nutrition and on top of this most of what we're told is the complete opposite of this you know we're told we're generally encouraged to eat complex foods that are slow to digest and the reasoning is that these foods are often low in calories and that they're filling and that they will be absorbed slowly leading to a more gradual release of energy and the consistent theme Running through these recommendations is one of restriction and deprivation. So we need to consume fewer calories. We need to eat bulky foods so that we trick ourselves into eating less and we have to work hard to extract every last bit of energy from our food uh, as if eating is another form of exercise and that we have to earn the nutrition from our food. And this is all tied into warped ideas of health and fitness where the pinnacle of good health seems to be to have a low body fat percentage and the ability to withstand punishment through the form of exercise and there's rarely any consideration for a broader perspective on health that considers your mental and emotional well-being so we're not really considering well what does health mean you know a six-pack doesn't necessarily equate to, to health and I'm not saying that we should go the opposite way I'm just saying that so much of what we perceive as, as being healthy is more so fitness or it's just an arbitrary standard that, that's just been marketed to us. Um, so most of the nutritional advice um, works from this body composition or fitness focused point of view, but appealing body composition and high levels of fitness are not not necessarily signs of good health, as, as I've said. Um, and if that sounds odd to you, which, You know, is fair enough because we see it everywhere. If that sounds odd to you, I would ask you, which groups of people are consistently ranked as the healthiest and with the highest quality of life and highest life satisfaction? And it's it's not generally the bodybuilders or the fitness models or the Olympians or the Instagram models. It's often remarkably normal-looking people who have created a healthy balance between the physical mental, emotional, and biological aspects of their lives. And the reality is that the fitness and nutrition industries are, they're industries, you know? They're, they're trying to sell us the latest product and they're trying to capitalize on our insecurities. And they're not necessarily concerned with our health. They're concerned with convincing us that what they have to offer is going to be beneficial to our health. And this isn't inherently bad, um, you know? Not saying that we shouldn't be sold things and they can't make a profit doing these different things. Um, it's just a reality that we need to grasp and we can navigate it then if we, if we realize that. And I mentioned this because people can be so quick to demonize and denounce the pharmaceutical industry on the one hand for its shady motivations. and you know that's all fair enough. But the same people won't question for a second, going into a health food shop and buying into all of the propaganda of the latest natural remedy that is the cure to all of life's problems and of course within all of this there are people who genuinely mean well and who make recommendations because they want to help but their good intentions don't make them right uh, and these fitness and nutrition gurus have their own biases and insecurities that are influencing the advice they offer so we need to question everything we need to challenge things we need to think critically and not see good intentions and people meaning well as being proof of uh of the truth um so there are problems with a lot of the advice we get around nutrition particularly when it comes to pain because pain relief needs to take into consideration the brain and its survival instincts so how do we eat in a way that makes our bodies feel safe? That's that's the big question that we're going to be tackling. And the short answer is it depends on the individual. And the long answer is we need to eat foods that our bodies can digest easily without additional and unnecessary downsides. Because most foods have negatives as well as positives. You know, they have certain nutrients as well as what are called anti-nutrients and what we're looking for is a net positive effect from the food and how it interacts with your body so for example raw broccoli appears to have certain antioxidants which appears to be a positive thing and this is what will be highlighted you know when they're trying to sell you the latest freeze-dried purified grass-fed concentrated broccoli extract but broccoli also has some negative compounds much like most foods you know this isn't this isn't about broccoli it's not i'm not picking on broccoli Uh, and these um, negative compounds they prevent the absorption of the nutrients and they can have a negative effect on the body so is there a net positive to the consumption of that food or not maybe there is maybe there isn't and again i can't say with any certainty but i don't believe anyone can Uh, or really should tell you with any certainty which is right for you at least not without knowing more about you and your individual biology so the problem is with this is that we generally want cookie cutter templates and we want meal plans we want to be told what to eat and when to eat it but this is part of why we've developed our health issues in the first place Uh, because we've lost the ability to perceive our body's reactions and that was a major epiphany for me is is the the shift from being a passive receiver of treatment or receiver of information to being someone who is thinking critically and evaluating things in the context of my body so uh, this content is all about encouraging you to that point and helping you attain that point so just to illustrate the point of most foods having negatives and positives, I thought I'd share some examples that might be surprising to you. So, for example, uh, nuts and seeds are broadly considered healthy and beneficial. You know, they're high in certain vitamins and high in what are claimed to be healthy fats. That's a topic for another day. So, um, on paper, they seem great. You know, you go into a health food shop; it's a wall of nuts and seeds. You go into your local supermarket and the nuts and seeds are in the health food section. Um, But their high fat content means they digest slowly, which according to some people is a good thing. But it also means that there's more opportunity for the food to influence your digestive system. So more opportunity to feed bad bacteria. And there are also downsides of the anti-nutrients which are stressful to your gut lining. And can be adversely um, can adversely affect the production of digestive enzymes. So, on top of this, the the fats found in nuts and seeds tend to be unstable at high temperatures, um, which is why we're generally encouraged to keep oils in cool, dark places, preferably not exceeding about twenty degrees Celsius, uh, according to uh, a website that specialises in olive oil and everything to do with olive oil. So, basically, average room temperature you don't really want to exceed that temperature when you're storing uh, oils and these are the kinds of oils that come out of nuts and seeds that are very sensitive to heat but the important thing to grasp is that our average body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius so we're advised not to store them above 20 degrees Celsius but our average body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius so we need to consider the fact that this is potentially enough to spoil the fat content and produce a negative effect from something that is generally considered a positive. And you'll see this as you look into cooking oils, they'll talk about high smoking points. Um, And the more saturated an oil is, the more stable it is at room temperature. So you look at something like butter, it's solid at room temperature, Uh, same as coconut oil, but then olive oil or vegetable oils are liquid. Um, so that's all to do with their saturation and their resilience to heat. So a lot of these oils, they don't tolerate heat very well, and so when they go into our bodies, they react negatively, and that's going to create an elevation in stress hormones. So that's something worth considering uh, when it comes to nuts and seeds, which are always considered to be good, and I'm not saying they're bad or you shouldn't eat them, but that you should understand the counter argument so that you can navigate that in an informed manner. Now the uh, next good example would be leafy green vegetables. So they've got all sorts of nutrients and antioxidants, but they also have anti-nutrients that will prevent the proper absorption of these and cause their own issues. So now you can prepare vegetables to reduce or even eliminate those downsides, but you're still left with a high fiber content, which for some people can be too abrasive on their gut lining. Um so fiber can be a contentious topic. There are good fibers, bad fibers, and then there's the individual. And so for some people fibers is going to be too abrasive and that's going to create issues. Um, on top of this, when it comes to leafy green vegetables, they've got a very low calorie content, which some people would say is good. But this means you have to work very hard to extract nutrients for not much reward in the form of calories. Uh, And this is a story we hear a lot about celery. People always talk about celery and how it requires more calories to digest it than you get from the food, which depending on the context, again, context is everything, this might be a good or a bad thing. In the case of chronic pain, when our goal should be to help the body feel safe and provide an abundance of usable energy, this might actually be detrimental. So this idea of restricting calories Um, I believe is is very detrimental to the pursuit of stress reduction. That doesn't mean you eat everything, that doesn't mean you eat 50,000 calories a day, but it means maybe you shouldn't be restricting calories as religiously so. Ultimately it is individual and it's context specific, but this is all just to kind of challenge you on maybe some of the beliefs you might have and just to present a counter argument so that you can be more informed. Ultimately, the point I want to make is that most of our beliefs about foods and nutrition are based on marketing. You know, what we really need is an individualized diet that's suitable to our individual needs. And we are generally the most suited to determine what this is. Yes, a highly qualified nutritionist or whatever can give you recommendations, but you're the person living in your body. You're the person who feels how the body makes you feel. And you're the person has to live with it. And so you are the most situated and the best situated to, um, to evaluate the, the merits of, uh, of, of your nutrition. So uh, the problem with this, so this is what I keep pushing is individual ownership, personal ownership of your health. But it's very hard to market this because it's an internal solution. You know, it doesn't make you dependent on a product that you can be sold again and again. So if I tell you that this supplement has everything you need and this is what's going to solve your problem, you'll keep buying that every month for the rest of your life. And so, you know, you, you talk about the lifetime, from a business perspective, you talk about the lifetime value of a customer. That person buys uh, 20 euros worth of uh, supplements once a month for, you know, the next 50 years. That's a lot of money especially when many many people are doing this and again there's nothing inherently bad about that companies should be able to earn a living people should be able to be sold things and people should be able to buy things but we're not marketed the internal solution because there's no real value in marketing the internal solution so just just uh, again some food for thought to really really challenge where you're where the information is coming from and what is the motivation behind that information so the next question really is how do we know which foods are right for us you know so i'm sort of poking holes in different things and i'm saying you need to eat what's right for you so what is right for you in the simplest terms we examine our body's response to a food or foods to you know we are examine the response to a meal. And we ask ourselves, how did we feel afterwards? You know, what symptoms developed or what symptoms were reduced following a certain food or following a certain meal? And then did our body temperature increase or decrease? Did our heart rate change significantly up or down? Ideally, if we eat something that is good for our bodies and that we can digest easily and use as energy, we should feel warm and calm afterwards. Because what we've done is provided the body with resources and now it can use those resources to fuel different functions. So we've we've created a sense of safety. Um, and essentially what this is, is an increase in metabolism. Your metabolism will increase when stress is low because the body feels like it has the resources, it's safe to do all this stuff and the metabolism will decrease when you're highly stressed because it wants to conserve energy. So um, what this translates to for you within your body is a a comfortable increase in body temperature. You should feel nice and warm and calm, but not hot or anything like that. So with this in mind, you may ask yourself if you often tend to feel cold uh, or if you have you know, cold feet, cold hands, or you know, cold—even like a cold nose. For some of you, you may lack the awareness to even notice a lot of these things, um, because people sort of get used to the way they feel, and um, and they they just don't notice. They just feel normal because this is what the way they felt. And you can also sometimes kind of. This was my experience. I felt a certain amount of pride in being comfortable with the cold. I was always cold. Um, But the way I spun that was I tolerate the cold and that's a sign of resilience. But really what that was for me is that my body was in this highly stressed state and my metabolism was very um, slow and and it was conserving energy too. It was essentially in a sort of constant fight or flight mode in this survival mode. So uh, you need to kind of reflect and you may need to ask a loved one because they might comment frequently on the fact that you have cold hands cold feet or that you're always cold or that you always need to wrap up and wear multiple layers regardless of how warm it might be so um and really what this is is your your body is converting that food into energy and that's that's what's generating the heat so if energy is provided then it's more likely that your brain is going to feel safe because it no longer has to fear starvation or famine so that's what we're going back to at the start of this episode talking about how when you have significant periods of fasting even that might be just a couple of hours you know if you're highly stressed and if you've been stressed for a long time going for two hours without a meal without balancing your blood sugar that can be highly stressful um, to your body and you might not perceive it that way Um so when we provide food we extinguish that threat of famine that threat of running out of food and that threat of death essentially so that that's that's why this matters and that's why you will find that uh, reductions in body temperature are good indication of uh, a body that's highly stressed so now before we get into measuring things in more detail let's see if we can get a sense of whether or not your nutritional habits might be contributing to your stress level so We always want to, like I always wanna keep things simple. Um, There's a lot of detail we can go down many rabbit holes when it comes to pain and chronic pain and stress, but I don't want you to be worrying about things unless they really apply to you. Like it's good to be informed, but we don't wanna become obsessive, uh, particularly if it's not relevant to us. So let's try to get a sense if what I'm talking about is actually relevant to you. Is your nutrition maybe not working for you? Um, Could you be doing a bit better? You know, People don't tend to suspect their nutrition because most people tend to think that they're they're quite healthy. Um, So the first thing to consider is whether or not you follow a really restrictive diet. Um, So really popular ones at the moment are a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet or even veganism or a vegetarian or fruitarian or carnivore diet, which is becoming more popular. Uh, Any kind of diet that you subscribe to. Um, that has that seriously restricts you when you, for example, go out to dinner. So you know if you haven't done any food preparation, if you're out for the day, or if you go out to dinner, and you you don't really have anything that you can pick from the menu that you can comfortably pick without maybe worrying about what you're going to eat, then that's a uh, um, that's a cause for concern. And really, what we're looking at is the tendency to worry about your inability. To adhere to your diet, so like I said, if you, for example, if you're on a low carb diet, and you have to go to a pizzeria for a work function, and you decide that all you can have is a salad and a glass of water, um, uh, because you 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 couldn't possibly eat a carbohydrate because it would completely derail your um, your health efforts and your nutritional efforts. So that that level of thinking, getting to that point, that's that's heading towards disordered eating and disordered thinking about eating. So um, just consider that for a second uh, and see whether this sounds like you. Um, And so just to give you an extreme example, this is something I experienced um, when I I used to work in a health food shop. And there was a tourist who came in and they were following this really strict paleo diet. and they didn't know what to eat you know they're a tourist in dublin and you know they're in a hotel they can't cook all their meals so they don't know what to eat and it's hard to go to restaurants and she i suggested you could go to a supermarket and they'll do like a rotisserie chicken or they'll do just whole pieces of meat you know straight from the animal nothing added really uh which would have been a sort of an ideal option you know given that she was following a paleo diet but the, the, the chickens they tend to have like uh, this slightest glaze of sugar like it's barely noticeable and it's on the skin so you could even pick it off but that was enough to discourage her from, from doing that 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 completely disqualified that as an option for her so she was that concerned about a gram of sugar passing her lips because she was entrenched in this paleo belief and I can say with complete confidence that that would have made absolutely no difference to her efforts even if she wanted to remain low carb uh, having the tiniest glaze like really really minuscule like you wouldn't even necessarily notice it Um, you know if, if you're worrying about things to that extent then um, that should be uh, that should make you pause and question you know really how are you approaching your diet and there's probably a more balanced view that you can um that you can approach so Uh, It's not necessarily just about paleo, but it's any kind of diet that prescribes, generally, a prescriptive list of foods that you need to avoid at all costs, and then diets that tend to demonize certain essential nutrients. Carbohydrates are the popular one at the moment. It used to be fat. We used to demonize fat, and now we're demonizing carbohydrates. The ketogenic diets, low carb, some paleo, uh, they demonize carbohydrates. and then things like demonized sources of food like dairy or animal products obviously there are ethical aspects to that but hardcore veganism because of the fear of the downsides of animal products i think is and some people will disagree but as far as i can tell is not a healthy uh perspective it, it makes no sense so what i will say and um, again just if you are entrenched in one position to to really challenge that is that the simple fact that there are tons of different nutritional ideologies and tons of positive testimonials and miraculous recovery stories for each of these so for ketosis for veganism for paleo for this that and the other for carnivore diets the simple fact that there are positive stories for all of these is an indication that a lot of things work for some people in different circumstances the key Ultimately is the individual, which is what I keep saying. It's the individual. It's not this system versus that system It's you as an individual. So if you think you have it all figured out, which tends to be the, the case with uh, particularly people who are into ketosis and veganism They they seem to think they've got it all figured out and they're high and mighty and all this um, I would say consider this fact consider how many different approaches there are and how successful they all are and consider that fact and accept that you might be wrong and your way might not be the best way it might work for you but it won't work for everyone and it might not actually be working for you which is the challenging thing to grasp with and hopefully um, we're going to uncover whether it's working for you or not using strategies um, that I'm going to outline later on in this episode so in any case I would encourage you to keep an open mind and be open to the fact that maybe your ketosis isn't right for you. And we'll give you ways of measuring that and determining that in, a, in an objective manner. So beyond this, in, in terms of determining whether you, your nutrition is relevant to your pain, we can look at general digestive symptoms that you might experience. Things like uh, bloating, heartburn, digestive issues of any kind really, more severe things like uh, IBS irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, colitis, which are becoming, seem to be getting more and more common. And then you can look uh, at things like the frequency of your bowel movements. So there's no hard uh, number. You know, I've, I've talked to a few different people about this, but the healthy range seems to be anywhere between at least one bowel movement per day or one for every meal that you eat. Um, so that's something to think about. How often are you going to the toilet? Is it frequent? Is it regular? Is it irregular? Is it infrequent? And uh, really, what we're, we're looking for is effortless bowel movements that are they're easy and that you don't have to strain to to have the bowel movements, and that they are fairly regular and you can expect them at certain times, and they are at the very least once per day. In some extreme cases, people don't go to the toilet for like a week or two weeks. I've heard of two weeks, which is crazy. So that's that's a sign that something is wrong. And if that is going on, that sort of issue, and you've also got pain, then you need to start looking at connections there because they, they might well be there. Um, and the reason digestive issues are relevant is because of a lot of so-called healthy foods are actually quite abrasive to the gut lining. So I touched on that a bit before. and um, the fact that they're uh, abrasive on the gut lining uh, causes issues because the the increase of stress, hormones and inflammation. And they they also tend to offer low levels of calories, which leads to low gut motility. So the gut motility, the ability of the uh, digestive system to move the waste basically down the digestive tract um, this actually requires energy. You know, bowel movements and the digestive process require energy, but we're generally sold the idea of fiber providing bulk. You know, to physically move the digestive process forward. But this is this is partially marketing um, as an opportunity to sell high fiber foods, and it's partially a, just a misunderstanding of healthy digestion. So, healthy digestion really happens via the contraction of muscles that move the contents of the gut through the digestive organs. Now, it shouldn't require a certain amount of fibre to take place. And again, that's not to say that fibre is inherently a problem and it has a place and, and that it can't be useful. It's just that the model that we require fibre solely to physically move the digestive process forward is... Um, it's misguided uh, and can lead to its own issues. So. Now, the next list of common symptoms are related to mental and emotional health. So you um, might ask yourself if you have a tendency towards anxiety. Do you suffer from depression or any other mental health issues? I find this really, really common with people with chronic back pain in particular. It comes hand in hand with uh, usually depression or some sort of mental health issue. and It can be a chicken egg situation, which came first is one the product of the other but it's really really common uh, and then do you have trouble sleeping which is also common and particularly issues with quietening your mind you know when you go to sleep can you just relax or is your mind racing and um, and then if you wake up do you struggle to fall back asleep because then your mind is racing and you're, you're worrying all night and then another one is um waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom usually around 3 or 4 a.m. If that's a very consistent trend, that's a sign of elevated stress hormones because your stress hormones will peak around 3 or 4 a.m. based on the natural hormone cycle. Um, So if that's happening to the point that you're having to wake up to go to the toilet, then that's uh, a good indication that your body is uh, producing too many stress hormones uh, and you need to consider that in the bigger picture then things like more general things like a lack of drive or lack of motivation but particularly to the point that it's holding you back you know you lack the drive and motivation to do the things that you need to do that's something we get into uh, when it comes to chronic pain perhaps you're in pain because you are not taking the actions you need to take and you are working against your best interests and um, you know that needs to be addressed you need to have the energy to do that and so that's a sign of chronic stress and usually a nutritional approach is what we need for that rather than a mobility approach so nutrition is relevant to our mental health again you know you might be wondering why what does nutrition have to do with my thoughts Um, and the reason it's relevant is because the food we eat creates the chemical environment from which our thoughts emerge uh, and this means that we can make ourselves more prone to negativity uh, to depression to anxiety and so on by the foods we eat and then on top of this if we're fasting frequently or eating in ways that are causing internal stress so eating foods that are abrasive that are increasing stress hormone production then this will affect our ways of thinking because we will become more uh, more prone to stress and more prone to catastrophizing and worrying and being anxious and so on so Um, A lot of people uh, tend to presume that they don't have any digestive issues or issues with their diet because they don't have any overt digestive symptoms, but they might have mental health issues instead. So it can be a combination of some or all of these, and as always, it's individual. But I've often seen people with mental health issues that were largely uh, nutritional while having no major digestive symptoms. So again, we're talking about nutrition and you're thinking but i don't have any digestive issues i'm fine so it can't be nutrition but if you're having mental health issues there will be a nutritional component to that so you don't need digestive overt digestive symptoms to have a a nutritional issue now the final types of symptoms we should look out for are slow healing times now If you're dealing with chronic pain, then that's a pretty good indicator of slow healing time because your body's not healing itself. But you can also look at a tendency towards poor recovery from illness or wounds. If you tend to get sick frequently or illnesses tend to drag on maybe longer than they really should, then things like frequent bruising or bruising very easily. And then um, brittle nails, brittle hair, hair falling out also receding uh, eyebrows so if the lateral third of your eyebrows is receding and thinning uh, that's generally a good sign of um, e- excessive internal stress because essentially what that is is yeah, going back to that analogy of you've got a thousand euros worth of income but it costs 1200 euro to run everything properly so what's going to get cut off well i don't really need the lateral portion of my eyebrows I don't, that's not a priority. So that can, I can stop maintaining that if I'm that chronically stressed. Um, and so those are some of the overt external symptoms that you, can, that you can find. And these are all symptoms of some sort of internal stress uh, where your body is either not getting enough energy or it's not able to use energy properly, um, which is often a result of chronic stress, which perpetu- per- perpetuates the issue and then uh, the other factor would be that maybe some of the foods you're eating are not agreeing with you so maybe you're eating enough but the foods you're eating just aren't right uh, for your needs you have you have an individual reaction that's that's a negative so now we're going to look at some measures that you can use to better determine which diet is best for you now the best one i've found is a combination of introspective analysis So monitoring myself, seeing how I feel, documenting that in a journal, and then tracking body temperature and pulse at different times during the day. So the the temperature and pulse give you an objective marker of what your body is doing. And then your introspective analysis gives you a subjective marker of how you feel. Uh, What we want to do is we want to see if these measures tend to match. So if the numbers are good, the objective numbers are good, and I feel good, then that's a good sign. Uh, But if I feel good, but the numbers are bad, then maybe I feel good because of high stress hormones and adrenaline Um, and vice versa. Or if the numbers are good and I feel bad, then maybe, maybe something is amiss and I need to look a bit deeper. So we want to see how these things match. And then over time, what we're doing is we're building uh, improved awareness of our body, and I'd, I'd like for you to get to a point where you don't need a body, a, a thermometer or to check your pulse to understand how your body is doing, because you, you know yourself, how your body feels, physically feels, like how, what your temperature is like, what your pulse is like when things are going well, and what these things feel like when things are going wrong. So you have that awareness. Now, with the temperature and pulse, there is also an element of individual individuality particularly depending on your fitness levels so your your heart capacity so i don't want you to worry about the numbers precisely but to analyze the overall trends so the average healthy range of body temperature is 36.5 degrees celsius to 37 degrees Celsius and um, which in Fahrenheit is 97.8 to 98.6 Fahrenheit so that's your sort of healthy range and you can measure this with a standard digital thermometer and be sure to try that a few times uh, to make sure it's giving you consistent readings and then the the average healthy pulse is between 75 beats per minute and 85 beats per minute now again um, that's going to be somewhat individual based on age, based on fitness levels, but that's, that's a fairly healthy range that you can aim for. And what you want to do is you can measure this with an app on your phone, and uh, that's they just scan your fingertip, or you can simply place two fingers on your carotid artery here on your neck, and you would count the beats per minute. You, you would count for 30 seconds, and then you would double the number, that's what I do. So again, these are just average, healthy ranges we don't need to obsess over them or look at them in isolation but we want to track these alongside your symptoms to get a sense of everything that's going on so you'll need to measure these and make a note of your symptoms as soon as you wake up then 30 minutes after your breakfast then after about two hours of fasting which uh, is usually just before you have your lunch and then 30 minutes after your lunch The general trend we're looking for is that your temperature and your pulse should rise gradually as the day goes by and if there are drops in temperature uh, then that's an indication of an increase in stress hormone production and as you monitor this over time and you monitor your symptoms you'll begin to get a sense of which foods are working for or against you or if you should be eating more frequent frequently sometimes you might be eating well but you're just not eating frequently enough so your body temperature drops because it's going into a a stressed state so this will tell you what your body is doing without any of the marketing spin or of a specific nutritional ideology so whether you believe in ketosis or not and its benefits the numbers won't lie they will tell you how your body feels objectively because sometimes you can think you feel good, but maybe that's because you're running on adrenaline and, and there sometimes our subjective sense of how, how good we feel isn't necessarily accurate. So that's the value of uh, measuring the two, the objective temperature and pulse, and your subjective sense and seeing how well they match and getting to a point where they consistently match. And so you have that awareness. Now, um, as is often the case, it's unrealistic and unethical to make recommendations beyond this. And this is a trend in my videos. I can't, uh, and this it's the point I I keep trying to make is, is it's individual. These are tools for you to take uh, matters into your own hands. Um, Ultimately the point I'm making is that nutrition uh, can't be simplified to a list of recommended foods or to a meal plan. You need to eat intuitively and you need to measure how your body responds. And what I will say is you generally can't go too wrong with eating foods that would have been available to us 100 years ago. So foods that could be grown, that could be raised, or that could be cultivated through traditional means without the need for major industrial processes. So in other words, you know these would be the foods that your grandparents or your great-great-grandparents would have eaten. So this can include things like fruit, vegetables, meats, dairy, grains, even ice cream. It's a, it's a major part of my diet and I'll talk about that at the end. Um, but really the point is that it's, it's about fresh foods that one could realistically make from scratch. So uh, if, it's a, if it's a processed food, it's still made up of um, ingredients that you could find. So if it's a sandwich, it's still maybe roast chicken, some vegetables from your garden, and a loaf of bread that you could have baked yourself so things like that um, as long as you stick to that general uh, those general guidelines it's hard to go too wrong uh, though obviously you want to check individually and for some people they need things that are far more extreme and far more controlled but like I said um, these measures these resources will help you determine that for yourself and of course there are people that you can go to who will Help you guide you through this process so as I begin to wrap up I think it might be worth sharing what I do and the foods that I eat and my own personal experience with nutrition and this isn't to um, again it's not to offer a prescription of what to do but more so to highlight how completely different it can be from the popular advice uh, so the foods I eat aren't necessarily the foods that you should eat but I want to show how I came to eat the way I, I do and how it has changed my health for the better uh, to eat more intuitively and to eat pres- and that to eat prescriptively according to a specific dietary dogma was actually detrimental for my health and, and how I learned that So um, I suppose a standard day for eating for me would be usually in the mornings I'm, I either have eggs um if I have the time, I often make milk powder pancakes. Now, going back to I mentioned that we should generally eat foods that are, that we don't require uh, industrial processing for, you know, large scale industrial processing for. So obviously milk powder, you couldn't have done that <coughs> traditionally, but the components of milk powder, the nutritional aspects of it are are, no different from milk it's just the texture that allows you to make milk powder pancakes so just to kind of offer some perspective on that so uh, that's what i found to be really good Uh, milk powder pancakes which are made with milk powder actual milk and then eggs and then a bit of salt a bit of baking powder and um, i would have that with maple syrup and that that's been one of the best breakfasts that i've been able to come up with in terms of creating this Calm, sense of warmth, and clarity, and mental clarity. And for some people, that might not work. For some people, it might not work for now, and it might work in the future. But the point is, it's not something that you're going to read about in the, um, you know, whatever your, you know, popular Instagram guru's uh, list of favorite foods. So um, that's that would be an average breakfast for me. Then throughout the day, I tend to eat frequently. Um, I find that I do best if I'm eating frequently. Um, without large gaps in between my meals. Um, I eat a lot of fruit, particularly quite ripe fruit, things like stewed apples, which breaks down a lot of the fibre. I have quite a low fibre diet, though I eat things like carrots a lot, um, which are very good for digestion. They're very good to um, reduce the harmful effects of uh, stress hormones in the body. They help to kind of soak those up and remove them. Um, so I've, I've personally found that very beneficial. I know some people who don't respond to it that well, but it's generally quite a healthy thing to try. Uh, carrot, raw carrot. Um, then typically I would make a soup, homemade soup uh, with a bone broth. So usually once a week I roast a chicken and we eat the chicken and then I keep the bones and I slow cook the bones to make a gelatin, high gelatin broth, high mineral broth. And then I cook a soup of uh, potatoes, carrots and uh, leeks. And I respond to that quite well. And it's also worth uh, mentioning that that specific recipe is um, the same soup that that my grandmother used to make. So there's a nostalgic aspect to that, which is valuable. And I think it's nothing to do with the, the nutrition. I think it's a nutritionally sound lunch to have a, a nice homemade soup with uh, a lot of gelatin in it, but um, I could possibly make it better But the fact that I have an emotional connection, so to speak, to it, and when I eat it, it reminds me of going to my grandmother's and she was, she was an amazing cook. And so, um, you know, there's that element to it. And we need to think about, when we start looking at nutrition in, in a deeper sense, we need to consider that, you know, what do these foods mean to us culturally, or what do they evoke in us and all that sort of stuff. So that's an average lunch. I need a fair bit of cheese. Uh, I get good quality cheeses from Switzerland and France. I really like good cheese and it's usually made from unpasteurized uh, raw, raw milk. And so you're gonna get certain bacteria and enzymes from that and um, that's not why I choose to do it, but it's it could be a factor in, in why I'm feeling the benefits. And then I eat uh, a lot of things like rice, uh, potatoes, and then meats. My meat consumption is far lower than it used to be, uh, not for any ethical reasons, to be honest, uh, just because i found um, I feel better if I don't eat tons of meat. But um, yeah, I know people who eat tons of meat and it works fine for them. So it's not a judgment one way, one way or the other. And then some of the, um, I suppose, more controversial things that I would eat a lot of is, I actually have quite a high sugar diet and there's a lot of misinformation around sugar. And basically, sugar is just the latest boogeyman that we can oversimplify all nutritional knowledge to and say, well, this is the problem. Sugar is the problem. But sugar is a fairly benign substance. It's just a source of energy and it's actually really good for increasing your metabolism because it's just pure energy. Uh, But with an increase in metabolism, you will need an increase in nutrients because as your body runs more, it needs more resources. So you need to balance a high sugar or high carbohydrate intake with high levels of nutrients, which uh, is a caveat, something to consider. So I eat a fair bit of ice cream. The thing with ice cream is that it's very high quality ice cream. So I only eat Haagen-Dazs, not because I'm rich or anything, but because I only ever get it when it's half price. And it's just a really high quality product. It's made with eggs, milk, cream, sugar, and vanilla extract. So this is what I mean in terms of, this is something that you could have made via traditional means 100 years ago. Um, maybe you couldn't freeze things, but the actual components of it are available to you. Um, or you could use honey instead of sugar, you know, if you, if you want to be really picky. But these things are just, natural will say ingredients that are readily available to mankind for a very long time now so ice cream is a major part uh, not a major part but it's it's a f- surprisingly big part considering it's ice cream and considering what people would think of ice cream um, and i make the, the distinction between high quality ice cream and what you would tend to get in a lot of shops because the ones in shops would have a lot of added ingredients that are um, quite harsh on the gut lining so a lot of gums a lot of thickening agents that help give it this texture and what you could see just to kind of illustrate this is if you get a pot of hagendazs and a pot of uh, like uh, hb like um, hazelbrook from whatever it's called uh, vanilla ice cream and they melt differently the other one melts to cream and the other one has almost like a, a fibrousness to it um So yeah, my diet is largely, uh, it's quite high in dairy. I didn't used to respond well to dairy, but once I found the ones that, the types of dairy that suited me, I got a lot of benefits from that. So uh, that's why I dislike blanket statements like dairy is bad for you. Um, Certain forms of dairy can be good and you you might need to fine tune that. Um, I have quite a high carbohydrate diet. I didn't used to, I did the whole low carb paleo thing and that gave me some benefits in the short term but it then caused tons of other problems. And it gave me a bit of pain relief initially. And that's, I think, because I got an increase in stress hormones. Stress hormones will tend to dull pain uh, initially, but ultimately it caused significant damage to my internal physiology. Um, And I feel like I'm still somewhat recovering from that. And that was about four or five years ago. So all of this is a process. And um, when it comes to health, when it comes to having been in pain for a long time having had health I- health issues in a long time the process of healing can be quite a long process that doesn't mean that you're going to be in pain for a long time but it does mean that you might be fine tuning things and you know in investigating things for a while and making this a part of your life and that's uh, that's just reality um so yeah i tried a lot of these dietary approaches the popular ones and I went through them, I got worse, I got better initially, then I got worse and then I was like, well, why am I getting worse? Because everyone says this is good and you start digging and you start digging and then you start seeing the flaws and you start thinking at an individual level. You're not thinking uh, from a prescriptive level. You're not saying, I'm going to eat this because this person said that's good. You start questioning things and um, i was working in a health food shop for for many years and learning about all that helped me see through a lot of the a lot of the inaccurate information that surrounds uh, health and nutrition so i suppose in summation if you are going down one of these paths of ketosis ketogenic diets low carb paleo uh, maybe it's right for you i don't know but Always remain open to the fact that things might get worse and that maybe it's just an initial honeymoon, honeymoon period and things will catch up to you and you will have new but different problems. Um, so that's that's worth considering. So now to wrap up in in summary, I suppose to, to kind of encapsulate what we covered in this pretty long video is that nutritional nutrition is individual. And if you want to figure out which approach is best for you, I believe you need to detach yourself from dietary dogma and you need to engage in intuitive eating and monitoring your body's objective as well as subjective uh, markers of health. So you, I would in- encourage you to eat mindfully, uh, to pay attention to what happens after meals and to track your body temperature and your pulse and you will begin to paint a picture of how your body is responding to the foods you eat and you'll begin to better understand your body's signals, your body's self-correcting signals. And I've I've included some resources in the description for further reading and for guidance on tracking things, as well as some information on foods that are generally safe, regardless of individual differences, because some foods are just safe no matter who you are. Um, And these are generally foods that are highly nutritious with minimal downsides. And what you could do as well is to have a look at the common foods in your diet and look up their anti-nutrient content. Because again, all we tend to hear of are the benefits of a lot of these so-called health foods. You know, we're not really informed of their downsides. So maybe you eat a lot of nuts and seeds in your diet and maybe that's fine, but maybe it's not fine. So consider that. Maybe you eat a lot of leafy green vegetables. Everything you eat is a salad. Um, and maybe there are downsides to that. I would suspect that there are downsides to it. I eat pretty much no salad ever. And uh, my health has benefited from that. But again, that's individual. Um, so, like I said, the, mo- the most common culprits I see that people underestimate are the leafy green vegetables. And that's because, you know, there is a reason for this. It's because dark green vegetables, uh, overground vegetables, basically they require a defense mechanism from predators because you know, kale or spinach can't run away from, uh, from anything that might eat it. So it needs to secrete certain substances that are called anti-nutrients to protect, uh, to protect it from predators. Now, underground vegetables, below ground vegetables, things like potatoes, carrots, parsnips, that sort of thing, they tend to be safer because they don't require the same amount of anti-nutrients to protect, to protect themselves from predators because they are protected by, <coughs> by, by being under the soil. Now they do have some protective mechanisms and that's worth considering but generally it's far lower than the overground leafy vegetables. So. Uh, that's something that you're not going to tend to hear from your Instagram gurus and something that would uh, you see a lot now the popular trends in you know convenience foods is salad bars and this kind of uh, information doesn't really bode well for their business model so but ultimately like I said it's an industry it's a health food industry and there are large profits in pushing certain foods and certain trends and certain remedies and ignoring their downside and saying, kale is so amazing for you. Let's ignore everything that's bad about kale because here are a few things that sound really good. Um, and what I would say is that at least in the pharmaceutical industry, they have to list the downsides. So there, there, there are regulations and they have to list the downsides, even though you know it might be in the finest of fine prints at the bottom of a booklet that you're never going to read but they have to list them they have to be upfront on some level about this but a person selling you (coughs) a kale salad or a kale supplement or whatever doesn't have to mention um you know maybe the thyroid thyroid suppressing uh, effects of this food or that uh, supplement or or whatever it is so what i would say is um question everything question the health industry question nutritional information the same way you question big pharma and all that sort of stuff so that's it for this episode Uh, quite a long one quite a rambling one quite a demanding one for me i'm really hungry now and that's something you can monitor in yourself when you're doing uh, demanding things mentally physically demanding things how do you respond and i feel my body temperature is dropping a bit Uh, i'm starting to feel stirring in my stomach and i'm quite hungry so um, you, you just grow uh, an awareness of these things and you can act accordingly and you can ensure good health by by being more aware so what I would say is I hope that this information challenged your view of nutrition and it encouraged you to ask some questions and I hope it has given you some motivation and some direction you know to look deeper and to better understand your health and pain issues to start questioning maybe the dogma that you've been following without really questioning um because i think that's that's the key point we need to sort of people talk about unplugging from the matrix and all that kind of stuff and it sounds a bit mad but there's a certain reality to that we need to kind of break that cycle we need to just kind of break the constant marketing the constant stuff that influences our thinking influences our buying behaviors because that's that's what it is we're we're being influenced to buy certain things and to invest in certain things because it means profit for a certain group of people and again nothing inherently wrong with that uh, as far as i uh, as far as i'm concerned but we need to be informed and we can then steer things in a better direction so um that's it for this episode <laughs> i hope you found it uh, beneficial um, i'm glad i wrote this out because i could have rambled on for three hours on this and it, it kept it relatively concise so like i said i hope you found it useful and um if you are still a bit confused if you find the you just maybe you're now more confused than ever please reach out and ask me any questions and i'll try to simplify this <clears throat> as much as possible um so in summation thank you i hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to like comment subscribe do all that good stuff uh follow the back pain coach on youtube on instagram on facebook and you can head to my website as well i do a free coaching session an initial coaching session just to see what you need and we can point you in the the right direction so get in touch for one of those and we can have a chat and share this with anyone who needs it And all the resources, everything, all the links are in the description. So thanks again for watching and have a great day.